Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is candidacy in the ELCA. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm Pastor Amanda Zenzalo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, last week we talked about seminary, which led us to the realization that we have never actually done a podcast on candidacy, which I, just like seminary, don't really know much about. So <laughs> let's start from the beginning of this. What is candidacy? Excellent. Candidacy is a different process than seminary. So basically this is the, so you think you want to be a pastor mm. or you think you want to be a deacon and what happens next sort of a thing. Seminary is the schooling that is required, the educational component. But there's another completely different portion of this process. Which do you go through first? Would you do the candidacy to see if you should do the schooling or do you do the schooling and then find out if you're a worthy candidate? Ideally, Mm -hmm. you do candidacy before seminary. You begin candidacy before seminary. Okay. Candidacy will span the entire time. When you first mentioned it, I had this horrible, horrible picture in my head of somebody who has spent four years and I don't know how much piles of dough Mm -hmm. only to find out at the bitter end that mm, we don't think you're going to be a good fit. Well, I mean, that's still possible. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But you will have warnings along the way if that were to be the case. So candidacy is the process that happens through the denomination, Your seminary work, you may go through the denomination, or as we mentioned in our last podcast, you might go to Harvard Divinity or something like that, Mm -hmm. and then do a Lutheran year. But candidacy is only through the denomination that you are seeking to become a rostered leader within. So if you're Episcopalian, you go through them and their process. If you're Presbyterian, you go through them. If you're an ELCA Lutheran, you go through the process that we'll talk about here. So candidacy is something that you begin by contacting your local synod office. Okay. And they will put you in touch with whoever in the synod is involved in the candidacy process. There's normally at least one point person, and then there's a committee that works with you throughout the process as you go along. Okay. There are three major stages to candidacy. Three major interviews. Okay. The first one, called entrance, should happen about a year before you apply to seminary. Whoa, that's a long end game. Mm-hmm. So before you even begin to apply to SEM, you talk to your Senate office, and they have the conversation with you about Are you thinking about this? Is this the right fit for you? Do you understand what the responsibilities would be? What kind of pathway are you going to take? Are you going to head through seminary? Are you going to explore the theological education for emerging ministries pathway? Are you looking at rostered for word and sacrament or rostered for word and service? All of that kind of stuff should all happen before you begin to apply for the educational component. Okay. Through that process... They will have you participate in a full psychological evaluation. Okay, this makes sense. So you get a full panel done. And it's things like, for folks who know, it's the MBTI, 
It's the Myers-Briggs test. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, all kinds of personality things, diagnostic kind of tests, full rigmarole. Each synod has a different group or person that they work with, but every single synod across the country requires a full psychological profile be completed prior to the beginning of candidacy. Okay. So that's your first step. And then you have what is called an entrance interview. Okay. This first step sounds like it's going to take you some time. I'm going to guess a couple of months at least. Absolutely. Okay. When I went through this, I don't remember there being an essay at this stage. There were questions and there were things that you had to share and be prepared to talk about and those kinds of things, but there wasn't like an essay that you had to write. It was really a, do you want to do this? Can you find the financial capacity to be able to pay for the full psych eval? Mm-hmm. All oh, of you have to of... pay for all of that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That financial responsibility starts early, doesn't it? It does. Or your congregation might chip in and pay for it. Okay. So that's the one thing that the congregation that I was in when I began candidacy, the gift that they gave is they paid for my psych eval. Okay. And I have tried very hard whenever there's a candidate for ministry in a congregation that I am serving to pay that forward. Sure. To encourage the congregation to take their responsibilities, to encourage individuals into ministry, which is a constitutional responsibility that we bear to take that seriously and at least help with that financial burden. Sure. So once you've gone through the psych eval, you've passed that, you have your first entrance interview. And this is the opportunity for the first kind of, are there red flags? Okay. Is this individual in this in order to start the next cult in the world? Sure. (laughs) Right? Or are they, is their heart in this for real? And there's lots of different things that could come up on a psych eval that may throw red flags. There's lots of ways in which there's a wondering whether or not psychological evaluation is the best way to go. Um, Yeah, but what else would you do? It seems like a logical place to start. I know. It's just an interesting process. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting process. So you got to start somewhere. And I hear people who say that it can be dodgy. So, well, sure, because nothing's perfect. And no one is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anyone gets into this kind of work without having something in their closet. At the same time, you want to make sure that you don't have someone who's a megalomaniac who's coming unchecked into ministry. So diagnosable megalomaniac, Mm -hmm. right? Not just someone that you think thinks a lot of themselves. So you get through the entrance, you go when you apply to seminary, you begin your seminary work. You do your education components. You learn the things you need to do. The next thing that is going to happen is we say yes or no to whether or not you can go put it to practice in the field. Okay. In other words, this one is your, the first is entrance. The second one is your endorsement. Okay. And what this is, is this is the ELCA saying, Yes or no, we endorse you to go into the field on your internship. Okay, so you're in seminary at this point, and you have Mm -hmm. to do either the third or the fourth year internship. Right. Okay. And this 
interview comes before you go out on that internship. And this is still coming from the Synod and not one specific congregation, correct? Exactly. Okay. So if, for example, you were from the Oregon Synod and you went to United Seminary in Gettysburg in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. you would still hold your candidacy interviews with the Oregon Synod. Oh, interesting. Okay even if you're in another state doing your seminary work, they are still the ones responsible for your candidacy process. Okay. So I did my candidacy in Sierra Pacific Senate where PLTS is located because I started the candidacy process after I started seminary. Okay. I was a weirdo like that because I decided I would be a pastor after I started seminary, switched my degree and began candidacy in my first year. Okay. So we sped it up a bit. But normally, you're in seminary for a little while, and then you have your endorsement interview. So with the endorsement interview, you will have an essay to write for the year. Each year, they rewrite the questions for the endorsement essays, Uh I believe. And then they have you write out your essay, send it in, they read it, and then they do an interview with you. And in the same way that the entrance interview is to say, yep, you're solid enough to go to seminary. Mm -hmm. This one is, yep, you've learned enough, you're solid enough to go out and actually work with people with some formal authority as an intern. Okay. How many people pass through the second process? I don't know. Okay. What I can say is the other thing that when I was in SEM, the other thing that came before we could do our endorsement is we had to do our clinical pastoral education. Okay. Which is working um, six to eight weeks at a minimum in a certified program, a chaplaincy program that is in a hospital or a prison. Okay. And those programs are very highly regulated and people who are CPE supervisors have done all of this stuff that we've talked about and an additional several years of chaplaincy training. Okay. And several years of supervisory training. Okay. (laughs) Right? So there's a lot more that they have to do to be certified to be the trainers of students in these highly selective environments. So, for example, I did my CPE work in the summer of 2002. Okay. And I came up after my second year of seminary, went straight into my chaplaincy work at Legacy Emanuel. Okay. Did my unit, my summer unit there, and then went directly into my internship at Creator in Clackamas. And so you have to have CPE completed and you have to have at the time what is called cross-cultural education completed. So my cross-cultural education was at a program that I don't believe still exists, but at the time, one of our cross-cultural education sites was in Burns, Oregon, Okay, with the Paiute tribe Okay, on the reservation. And so that's where I did my cross-cultural education in January of 2001. It was real cold. Yeah, I bet it was. It was real cold and real snowy. Learned so much more than I knew that I learned. Mm. But real cold, real snowy. Those kinds of experiences, that field work, they take all of that into account when they're doing this endorsement interview. And like for myself, 
I was placed on an internship site, but it was pending the successful completion of my CPE unit. Mm -hmm. So if I had failed my CPE unit, I wouldn't have gone on to my internship, even though I was endorsed. Okay. If that makes sense. Sure. So they want you to have these skills, these tools, these experiences under your belt, the actual knowledge and wisdom that you get from all the different pieces before you go into a parish. And then you have your internship year. And whether that's a third year or a fourth year internship, you have your internship experience. And when that is done and you have passed it, then you are eligible for the final interview which is called approval. Okay. Going back to the same synod. Mm -hmm. Back with the same synod. And part of approval is what is called or what used to be called the form D, which is a form that says from your education folks that you are academically sound. So what this all ties to is in the ELCA, we believe in what is called a trifold sense of call. Okay. A call that you personally affirm in yourself. And that is affirmed through your stick to itness uh, or whatever, which I see lots of ways in which some assumptions that we make from white, educated, privileged places is coming into question. Okay. So I just want to say that and say that I'm still learning. But how it was taught to me was that the sense of personal call is affirmed through your ability to complete the education cycle. Okay. So that form D from your professors shows that you have what it takes. You've learned enough. You've stuck through it. You've done the homework, literally. You have that. Sure. The call from God is affirmed by churchwide from these processes of entrance and approval and endorsement, that the work that you do and the ways in which you can articulate theology and articulate your faith, the way that you work among God's people through these additional educational experiences of internship and CPE and cross-cultural and all those kinds of pieces, that that all affirms the call from God. And that, that is what these interviews are about. But you continue to not be eligible for rostering, for ordination, either as word and sacrament or word and service, until you receive a letter of call from God's people. Okay, so you can go through this whole thing, pass all the interviews, take all the education classes, garner all the debt, and mm -hmm. still not get a call. Correct. Yeah, that has to hurt. So I waited for a year from the time that I graduated and was approved before I received a call. One year is actually not a terribly bad long wait. It sounds like a long wait. It does. Even having just gone through the pandemic, it sounds long. <laughs> and But I'm a, a woman, and I was a young single woman, and so a year wait is really average. Most of my male white colleagues, of course, had calls before they left seminary. Sure. And my queer colleagues or my colleagues of color will wait three to five years Oh wow! to receive a letter of call. So your approval, if you're approved at the end, you've gone through, you've written your approval essay, you've had your interview with your folks, you've gotten your Form D, 
all of that stuff happens. You graduate from seminary, you get all of that done. You have three years. Oh, there's a clock on this, huh? There's a clock. You have three years. If you do not receive a letter of call within those three years, you need to reapply to remain on the docket to keep your approval going. To keep your status active, you have to reapply. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the same way that if you go on leave from call as a pastor, so say I was burnt and needed a break and I go on leave from call. Okay. Pastors do it for a lot of reasons other than just being burnt. But say I went on leave from call, I have three years of being on leave from call. If I do not stay in contact with the Senate and keep my rostering intact and keep them informed, then by year four, one, I'm going to have to reapply, but I could have to reapply to be approved again. Ooh, that sounds way more serious. That's a lot mm -hmm. more to go through. That's a lot more to go through. But this is the way in which we make certain that our rostered leaders are current with theological context and conversation. Mm -hmm. It's the way in which we make certain that we're keeping track of how people are doing and where they are, that they stay connected one way or another. But there's lots of reasons why some of this structure creates barriers, creates more than barriers, creates tripwires. Sure. And can make it very hard, if not impossible, for folks who are not white, middle class, mm -hmm. right, with all the access that privilege brings us. And so what we end up having, right, and this is a very sound critique of the ELCA, what we end up having is a predominantly privileged rostered group of folks mm -hmm. and the whitest denomination in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. So it's a robust screening program. Which is a good thing. I mean, which honestly, is a good thing. like you said, there's mm -hmm. some things that can go terribly wrong with somebody in charge of a congregation. Absolutely. And I think that there are places and ways in which we need to continue to question and wonder about this process and how it bars and keeps out individuals who, and I, I'm putting this in air quotes, don't look like us, mm -hmm. right? Because all of these different things really do bring forward the fact that we have an academic elitism that is pretty tremendous. You have to be able to afford all of these loans for eight years of school, undergraduate and graduate, in order to be eligible unless you go the team route. And in which case you're fighting to prove your legitimacy through your own community, right? And so it's a fascinating journey. And I got to say, going through candidacy is hard work. Oh, I can't even imagine. Even if I felt some kind of pull or call, as you say, I probably would have tapped out at the whole chaplain thing. <laughs> I mean, there's, I loved that part. There's some very early parts where I'm like, ooh, I don't think I'd have passed that. <laughs> and normally folks do chaplaincy between first and second year. Oh, okay. I had this thing where I had to take Greek because I didn't have any Greek in undergrad. And I didn't take Greek in my first year of SEM because I wasn't going to be a pastor. So why would I do that? So 
I had to take summer intensive Greek between first and second year to meet my Greek requirements. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do my CPE between second year and internship. Normally you do it early enough and many people do step out after the chaplaincy work. Uh They shift their degree to maybe an MA instead of an MDiv or an MTS, or they just leave seminary altogether because that chaplaincy summer, it reveals a lot. Oh, I'm sure it does. Do they have any sort of, we realize this is the path that you'd wanted. You're perhaps either didn't pass the second part. Are there other paths that they say you should try this or have you thought about this? Is there any help or guidance from the Senate itself or is it mostly your decision on your own? There's a lot of help and guidance. And some synods obviously are going to be better at offering that than others, mm-hmm. just being truthful about that. Some synod experiences are very nurturing and kind and helpful, and some synods may have more of a feeling of gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. And frankly, some synods are quite traumatic for some of our candidates. I just want to be honest mm-hmm. about that. But ideally, each step of the way, should you hit a roadblock or should something come up that you're seeing red flags or you yourself as a candidate are seeing yellow flags or you're, you're wondering if this is the right way to go, you can ideally talk with your candidacy committee and they can help you either come up with pathway ideas, they can help you to find another route. If, for example, a site is just not working, so either your CPE or your internship site, something has happened that it's just not going to work. The opportunity to shift that, change that, try it again, go somewhere else, all of that can be managed with your candidacy committee. Ideally, candidacy committees, if they see reasons to stall a candidate, Mm -hmm. will give very clear instructions on what that candidate needs to do to become eligible. So at each stage, there are three things that can happen. You can pass, you can be postponed, or you can be declined. Okay. So declined, we're done. And it's just like uh, a job termination. Sure. The committee cannot say anything to anyone about why the decline happened. The candidate gets to say whatever they want to say outside of the room. But the committee is held to silence. And so there is no knowing why a candidate has been declined from a committee's perspective. Okay. I cannot speak for any committees. I think that is a very hard decision to come to, and it is a heartbreaking decision. And the individual who is being declined, their heart is shattering. Oh, I believe it. And the ability to hear and the ability to understand is probably very challenging. And so when I have had people that I know who have been declined, I know someone who was declined at the approval stage. I have held that with just such tenderness in my heart because I don't think that for anyone it was an experience or a situation that was anything other than heartbreaking. And so holding that with gentleness and prayer, it happens. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one piece. The postponement, what happens is ideally, and again, not always, Mm -hmm. but ideally, 
the candidate is told, we're postponing your XYZ. Mm -hmm. We're postponing your endorsement until after you've completed CPE, for example. Uh We're postponing your endorsement until you've completed an extra unit of CPE. Mm -hmm. We think that one extra unit is going to help you. Or we're postponing your endorsement to go out into the parish as an intern until after you've completed six months of intentional therapy work on these couple of topics that have consistently come up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's different places and ways in which they can give very clear criteria that once you have met it, they should pass you. If you fail to meet it, they can decline you. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a big power dynamic. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm still more fascinated by the aspect, though, of not getting a call in the end, Mm. especially knowing that there seems to be a shortage of pastors that's come up (laughs) on us, I think, in pretty much every denomination out there. Yeah, this one is one of those, like, questions and reactions that you're going to get different perspectives on. Okay. So there is lots of talk all over the interwebs about the shortage of clergy in multiple denominations. There may be fewer clergy than there were 70 years ago. Well, there's also fewer people who are actually going to church than there were 70 years ago. Bingo. Okay. And there are a lot of churches that maybe need to be released, Mm -hmm. right, and find other ways to be church in the world. There's not a lot of full-time calls, for clergy. There's a lot of part-time calls in small congregations, but remember that thing I said about the debt? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds super hard. I know there were a lot of shared congregations in the small Mm -hmm. towns back in the Midwest. Oh, one of my friends did a, hear this one, a 12-point parish for their internship. Oh my. Four clergy, two rostered leaders, two interns. 12 congregations. So they had, if there were four, they had to hit three congregations per Sunday. There's no way I can make that math pencil out. That's nutty. Tri-County Ministries. Wow. Welcome to the Midwest. Oh yeah. I fully believe that. And like you said, with the overwhelming debt that you're coming out of this with, Mm -hmm. that's too hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the other real, very, very real thing is that There are a lot of amazing candidates who are queer, Mm -hmm. who are people of color, who are second career, who are single, who don't look like a young man and his family, Mm -hmm. that some congregations just are not willing to consider. And so there are many candidates that have been waiting for years to receive their first call in order to be ordained, to be eligible for our health insurance and pension. Oh, I totally forgot about that heartbreaking component of all this. Oh, yeah. These are all parts and pieces that factor into the power dynamics of all of this. So you can wait for your first year of call, but your student loans start to come due. Mm -hmm. You're not getting health insurance Mm -hmm. and you're not getting a pension anywhere. All of this means that there are amazing candidates who hear this 
there's a clergy shortage, there's a clergy shortage. And they're like, well, then why am I not getting a call? Sure. And it's because our church isn't ready to fully embrace the diversity of God's leaders. It's interesting. The hope would be that with Bishop-elect Megan and the whole pandemic and the online church and everything else, that things will move and change and evolve. Mm-hmm. But here's the other thing. My husband has always talked about church time. And let me tell you, church time seems glacially slow. Yes. And we, as a denomination, have this thing called bound conscience that has given people permission to stay rooted in tolerance, Mm. that we can tolerate things that we disagree with, that we will tolerate holding different positions. I understand, I viscerally understand why that is appealing as a white woman of privilege, because it's a lovely idea to think we can all just get along and we can agree to disagree. Mm Mm-hmm. But the reality is, the hard, harsh reality is, we will never become a truly diverse church, and we will never find our way to radical acceptance of leaders that don't look like us if we continue to hold the ability to agree to disagree as more important than the ability to embrace the radical, amazing call of God. And so this is part of this tension of where the ELCA is right now. Uh This is where you'll see young, rising leaders in the ELCA calling to burn it all down Mm -hmm. and established leaders of the ELCA really struggling to hold on to what we have had. Mm -hmm. And this tension between the two, we could say it's a tension between boomers and millennials, if we like. Sure. And here in the middle sits the Zennial, right? (laughs) (laughs) Looking, watching both sides and saying, okay, I see where the church has been and where the church is going. And we are at this tension point. I think it'll be fascinating to see if candidacy changes in the next five to 15 years. Uh And I deeply appreciate the ways in which there's a call for changes because I think it's needed. But for now, this is our process. Okay, that's going to lead me to my last question. If you could change one thing about this whole candidacy process, Mm. and it can be anything, you can make it somehow economically feasible to get through all the schooling that you need. It can be whatever. What do you think is the one thing you'd love to change the most? What would I love to change the most for future leaders, future rostered leaders in the candidacy experience? Oh, what a beautiful question. I would make it safe. In what ways? I don't know, but I would want it to be safe. Okay. That as candidates are bearing their souls, you are so vulnerable. You're telling your call story every single interview. You're bearing your soul. You're volunteering to sit in a room with five to ten people that you admire greatly and show them your soul and say, am I worthy? I can't even imagine. It was hard enough interviewing for the yarn store job to try right? and like, have to bear your soul to a congregation. Whoa. And we do it when we interview in congregations, but this is like, I don't know, what came, what just came to mind was this is walking up to Thor and trying to pick up the hammer. Sure. <laughs> 
Right. And I, I would want to make that safe for our candidates, for those who dare to say, here am I, send me. And I don't know exactly what that would take, but I've heard way too many stories of it not being safe, that that would be my heart's prayer. Excellent. This has been an utterly fascinating conversation. And thank you very much for having it with me. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on whatever topic we come up with next. Excellent. And thank you all for listening. If you have a curiosity about candidacy and you want to learn more, you can certainly go to elca.org slash candidacy and learn more there. You're welcome to reach out to me at pastor at centralportland.org or reach out to the Oregon Senate. We have a new candidacy director here in the Oregon Senate, Pastor Matagali, who they are beautiful and wonderful and one of the most amazing souls I have ever had the delight to meet. So feel free to reach out to them to learn more and to begin your journey. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.